Come on, come forward, come forward, forward, come forward, forward, forward. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wal-aqibatu lal-muttaqeen, wa la'udwana illa ala al-zalimeen, wa salawatullahi wa salamuhu ala sharaf al-anbiya'i wal-mursaleen, Sayyidina Muhammad, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in, Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'altahu sahla, wa anta tajul al-hazna idha shayda sahla, Allahumma a'inna ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husna ibadatik, ya Rabbil Kareem. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Right then, folks. So, alhamdulillah, um, the second lesson of logical progression, alhamdulillah, was a great launch yesterday as well of, um, of uh, Quranic progression in uh, Birmingham with uh, Sheikh uh, Ahsan, and uh, it went very well, alhamdulillah, we all went down, um, and it was a good gathering and a good vibe, so inshallah, I hope that the folks uh, are able to keep up with that online, certainly from the folks here, I think it's going to be beneficial inshallah. Um, and it's also, I think, nice and easy listening as well. You know, Sheikh Ahsan is no, you know, no messing about, no chocolate, no cakes. I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing. Subhan, can you imagine being in Birmingham, yeah, next to Cadbury's and not having chocolate like every day? <coughs> and not just chocolate, but not having Cadbury's every day. By the way, you know, I just want to say to you that Shazad shared some chocolate with me yesterday. You know how much the box cost? Shazad, tell him, yeah. No, no, forget what but we pay. It doesn't matter what we pay for it. No, no, it's about what the, what the box was worth. All I'm saying, did you hear that? 50 pounds. 50 pounds, haram. I was about to give fatwa, but then he told me how much he did pay, then I let him off. So that's the first thing. Second thing, it had one of those royal, you know, by appointment of Her Majesty the Queen, 1826, Bukwasi, I know on it, yeah? Thirdly, it had one of those names you can't pronounce. So it had all the right ingredients, yeah, you know what I'm saying? It says like, Shabaday and Walker or some Bukwas like that. So the fourth is, is that not only is it a name that you can't pronounce, but a name that you never heard of. That's also very important in the upmarket uh, chocolate thingy. And the fifth most important ingredient is that it's got flavors that don't even make any sense. So it was three types of salt truffle. Milk sea truffle, something like that. Something else type sea pecan truffle. Eh? Is it not, Yeah. Yeah, online well, is true as well. That's what Mrs. been saying, but you know. And um, anyway, it was really nice. Very expensive. And they had a few others in the bag. And, we went. and you know what we said after about 10, 15 minutes? Nothing touches Cadbury's, you know. Guess <laughs> <laughs> nothing touches Cadbury's. You know the buzz you get off of Cadbury's, yeah? You just feel good, you know? And you eat a lot of it. And it's all right. You know what I mean? Yeah, just wanted to say that. Right. So also the other important thing that we didn't do this week, which we need to do, uh, last week, sorry, which we need to do this week, is the uh, winners, or the, the best results in the exams. MashaAllah, tabarakallah. So we had uh, a nice turnout this year. And MashaAllah, tabarakallah, MashaAllah, tabarakallah, Ruhi, Sister Ruhi from the States, she smashed it again. She was first last year, and she got it. Second, yeah. Zafar, by the way, that's Zafar is one who, uh, yeah, testing and set the exam, whatever, whatnot. So, yeah, and unbelievable that he had Bir Sharam, he put his name up there as well. And you think you have some kind of Bersi, like, you know, let me just take my name off. No, but he puts it up there as well. What happens in your pride part of your brain? Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Yeah. So, anyway, 
as you can see, Abdul Nasser, as usual, yani he arrives late, okay? So he'll arrive soon, and then he'll realize that he didn't... Uh... Oh, no, no, oh, sure, is it? yeah, yeah, he came second, yeah, proper, yeah. And Dina, well done, mashallah. You know, Dina works hard. You know, I've got to say, respect to Dina. She's always in touch. I always get a question via the Facebook page or someone here is asking me about that. But the sad news is, is that the States, again, and North America has won again in the first top 10. They took the most, they took the most uh, uh, top marks. Again, that happened last year as well. So I just want to say that you pack is in front, yeah? Just wasting your time. Uh, and to be honest, all you're here for is really basically the chocolates. You come here, have the chocolates, have the cakes. And I don't think that any of you have even seen the portal. I don't even think you've even opened their notes, let alone set an exam. And subhanAllah, that shows that the people who are far away, far away, as always, are the best. You know what, what used to happen back in the day when we were students, yeah? We used to live right next to the masjid. It was the worst thing ever living right next to the masjid. The amount of times... Um, you know, I used to live next to Mecca Masjid in Longside, like right next to it. Yeah, in fact, in fact, let's talk about a guy who is the neighbor of Mecca Masjid, Bobby J, who's sitting in front of me, that big cheeky. I never saw him in a message, cheeky pack. Yeah, shut up. I'm gonna throw something at you. Yeah, and I used to get so angry at him. Yeah, and then I realized, and I used to live the next road, and I used to be late every salah. Every uh, behave, <laughs> behave. I was late today. I was late today. I was late today. I give you that. But the point I'm making is the closer you are to the masjid, the more likely you are you're going to be late. You just get too lazy. You think, no, no, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm just giving you the example that you lot so close, Yani, and just useless, all of you. That's the analogy I was making. And those who are far away and have to drive in and have to set off early, they always get it earlier. And those who are in this status, those who are miles away, they're smashing it every time. So anyway, uh, Ruhi, I'm going to be in touch, Yanni. I'm going to give you a nice present this time because I don't think I gave any presents this uh, last year. So we'll give her a present. And she deserves definitely uh, uh, the best first pick of the cake and thingy. And uh, Ruhi, you'll be delighted to hear that I'm going to eat on your behalf. So I just want you to know that this week's assortment, which looks absolutely sick, okay, is this bunch of babies right here. Oh, yes. You know, you know when someone oh, uh, yeah, it takes an Aero mint bar and makes a cupcake out of it, you know that person's on the huck, you know that. <laughs> yeah, that person's on a right manhaj, all right? I love that behavior. Yeah. So anyway, I'm very happy about that. Rohi, believe me, it will go to a good place. It will go to a good place. Right, okay. Any other announcements we need to make? Anything we need to say? Keep an eye on the time. Keep an eye on... The times, I mean, uh, online, because obviously the next few lessons are going to be changing uh, each time. It's very important that you make sure that uh, it's not when, you know, it's still a couple of weeks away before it gets st- st- set time after uh, Isha. So it's still between Maghrib and Isha. Right, okay. So let's have uh, the main uh, stuff on Shaz. Let's have the notes up for me. Let's, uh, let's see what we're going to do. Um, today I've got a plan. I want to clock one subject and clock it really well inshallah and that is the issue of the hands okay the issue of the hands in the prayer um, so where did we get to um, I think yeah in the, in the, in Al Mumtah we just read the poem right I think that was the last thing we did right at the bottom of page 35 okay that's good and in terms of uh, the actual 
text. You see that uncle who just walked past there? That's the one you lot freaked out, okay? Yeah, Nina, I'm just saying to you, Nina, you just missed the uncle that just went past. Yeah, that was him. You didn't see him, yeah? Good thing he didn't see you. That's more important, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And good thing that Lutz is at home, yeah? And he just said, stay at home. You gotta keep that, always come, keep that relationship going, yeah? You keep coming, keep her at home, bro. She nearly got killed last week, yeah? He nearly had a heart attack. Alhamdulillah, at last, at, at least Apple Watch, yeah? And will be able to save him next time now. The new one, yeah? But measures ECG, realizes what happens when you fall, your blood pressure goes up. Can you believe that, Bakwas? The new Apple Watch for. Not interested? No. What does it do? That's what it does. It takes your ECG. No, then it knows you're going to die. Honestly. And it sends you a message when you die as well. <laughs> Think about, Yanni, the technological advance of that. When you're about to die, it sends you a message, Yanni. Yeah, a bit, I don't know about a bit late. I mean, it's a nice touch, isn't it? Huh? Spent all that money on a phone. At least get Yanni a message when you're going out. <laughs> anyway. And, subhanAllah, the whole thing was on. I was doing my reading. I had the whole thing on. And I'm hearing... And, you know, you know, all that sickening Gianni rhetoric, the greatest iPhone we've ever made. You'd have think that after one year, they're making another phone, it should be the greatest iPhone you've ever made. But they keep saying that it's great, it's great, great. And I was going, sick, sick, take my money, take my money. <sighs> I feel so sad to be stuck in that, in the, in, the, in, the, in the grip. I'm a slave, basically. But I'm not that kind of, I'm the slave who took the chains and put it around my own neck. Just the anus and there you go. In fact, no, 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 it wasn't like that. I took all the money out first, then I said, chain me like that, then I go like that. Now, lead me wherever you want me to go. I hate that slavery. That'll be getting it in one's time, no doubt. Right, okay, so the Arabic that we're going to be covering today is I don't think we'll get to that because I really want to focus on the. I mean, to be honest, this uh, English, uh, this part is probably some of the most يعني, controversial or not most controversial, but the, the thing that's most asked about. Yalla, wake up, Shaz. Oh, yeah, sorry. So it says he then grasps his left wrist under his navel and looks at his place of prostration. But the thing that we want to focus on is the grasping of the left wrist under his navel, right? <laughs> so these are the two big controversial things that really upset people, especially elders, especially those that come from different cultures. So if, if you're a Shafi and you go low, then they get upset. And if you're a Hanifi and you go high, then they get upset. And if you're yani, right on left and you start touching the arm, they're like, well, you know, Wahhabi kind of moved there. Oh, yes, you sick guy. I thought I told you that this food is banned. We can't have that excuse. Oh, unbelievable. Look at this. Look at this propaganda. No, listen. Honestly, this is not right. Gassimbi, we're getting far. I've since Hajj, upon one and a half kilos. Since Hajj? That's two weeks. Two weeks. I was reading Tom Watson's story, you know, deputy leader of the Labour Party today. He reversed diabetes too. I said to him, I gained diabetes too since Hajj. He reversed it and I gained it. He gave it to me. He gave it to me, basically. Kasmeh. Unbelievable. Anyway. So, um, the, these two things, as I said, they're so sensitive amongst Muslims. So sensitive, right? And so what's important for us is to know the knowledge behind it. Where is it coming from? What's the actual truth in terms of the sunnah? 
And once we know that, how do we deal with this knowledge? Okay, because this knowledge is incendiary, right? There are certain things that you learn and study in ilm, in Islamic knowledge, that are much, much bigger than what they actually are. I mean, literally, there is nothing less important in Islam, let alone the prayer, than where the hands go and the hand on the left. I, I only know of a consensus of the entire scholars of Sunnah that this is an action that the prayer is valid without, meaning if you had your hands yani, at the side. So neither right on left and neither below or above the prayer is valid by all four imams and, 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 by all scholars old and new. So think about that for a second. A piece of knowledge that is so not so important in terms of validity and importance of the prayer, and yet it creates so much heart, uh, heartache and grief and so much yeah, and trouble for people at home. And it represents so much of a change of what you are. It's clear that a person who all his life, yani normally at home, is praying one way, and if they're seen again a year later after they went to university with their hands, yani a bit higher or whatever, it's just like a big message to their parents that you've rejected my entire life and my khandan and my bradari and yani my deen and my whatever, and you've become Wahhabi now and that's it, my whole life is over and now you're going to have to get divorced. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, major overreactions. And so, like I said, there's one thing, understanding the knowledge and working through the confusion, because it is confusing, actually, it is. But then it's what to do with this knowledge. What do, you know, how do we do, how do we uh, implement it ourselves? How do we utilize it? You know, because um, I'll forget to say this, because I'll forget, so I'll say it now, my father's here for this lesson. And my father's praying next to me. I will never lift my, uh, my hands, my right over my left, above my navel if I'm standing next to my father. Never. It upsets him so much. See, people take that super sensitive, right? And that's just the way people are, right? So, uh, let alone raise my hands. I mean, that you know, slice my throat before I raise my hands, you know what I mean? That's the ultimate killer, that is. Yani. That, 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 I think, is the, the Pakistani parent through the heart, yani, dagger, the raising of the hands, yeah? So don't, just put your hands in your pockets and it'll be better for you. You pray with your hands in your pockets, your parents will be happy with you, then you try to raise your hands. I'm thinking right now, at least they'll think, yeah, they'll think yeah, maybe that his hands are cold or something. So <laughs> we let him off. But don't even dare raise those hands because that is, that's death. Right? So just so I want you to know that there's one thing about the knowledge and then what you do with it. What, what is its uh, relevance, its importance, its, its application. So that's yeah, something which is important. That's one of the most important reasons you uh, study the categorization of actions. Okay, so currently when I'm, I'm teaching in, in Denmark, I mean, I was going to stay, but I came back. Uh, and where we've got to, we just introduced uh, uh, conditions, where the, the shurut, and we just started the arkan. And then on Saturday, we'll be going through wajibat and sun, uh, sunan. So that's the pillars, and then that's the obligations, and then the recommended matters. And the actual reason that you study these categorizations is so that you know that in legal emergencies what you can leave and what you must do. In legal emergencies, you wouldn't have thought that a time would come that you need it for social emergencies. Do you get what I'm saying? And that is now probably as important, that we learn the categorizations of prayer for social emergencies. And when I say social, I don't mean non-religious. I don't want you to be thinking that when I use the word social, that I mean irreligious. Because I remember very clear, I remember very well when I was younger... Uh, when I started practicing, it was very much of the end of the Afghan Jihad, okay? And the Afghan Jihad in Manchester was very big because a lot of the Mujahideen, they came back here and they sought asylum. 
And the UK policy, of course, at that time with respect to foreign fighters and for uh, Mujahideen and whatever was very much a process of let's keep an eye on them. Let's not keep them outside. Let's not ban, but let's bring them in so that we can see what they're doing. So if you're wondering where did all these Abu Hamzas and Abu Qatadas and all these you know, big, big figure headline figures came from, it's because the UK knew fully through its intelligence services uh, with working with their partners in the, the Arab countries and Middle East, especially Saudi Arabia as well. These people, they were, they were, they were betrayed in a way that you can't imagine in the, in their, from their own countries. So for example... The Libyans, a lot of Libyans went, Algerians, Palestinians, Saudis, of course, Sam bin Laden, of course, was the, one of the main kind of uh, you know, leaders at that time, uh, or inspirational figures. I mean, these were not necessarily scholars, but they were kind of people who were either professionals, like dentists and doctors, like Ayman al-Dawahri, you know, he was a consultant and whatever, big, big figures who started practicing afterwards, students of knowledge, some scholars. Abu Qatada was a bona fide top scholar, even at that time, Okay. And uh, so scholars and, and activists and, you know, just Muslims, they all went, did their thing and fought in a legitimate jihad against the Russians. And uh, as you know, historically, the Americans backed them, Pakistan backed them, Saudi backed them politically, financially. This was the area of the Al-Haq, Ziyal Haq and, you know, all of the stuff. Yeah, and, you, know, you know, all the politics and all the history behind that. But obviously afterwards, it's a problem that no one wanted to deal with. Right, and so when they were trying to come back, their countries were were if they got a great result, then they're imprisoned for life, and if they got done like they got betrayed, then they were executed. So all of the Middle Eastern countries were involved in that, and to that extent, Pakistan actually was very good to them in that they gave them many homes. So we you know when you go and see the Arab kind of legacy, you know, you go to certain areas like Peshawar, especially. And less so Islamabad, and certainly not you know, the, the, the other sites like Lahore and Karachi, but certainly like the northwest frontier areas. They have enclaves of Arabs and married into the things and their kids and whatever. And that only happened because of the returning Mujahideen. They gave them home, gave them business, gave them support and protection from a lot of the Arab countries where they had gone back, been betrayed, learned the lesson, and then, then you know, they were taught. The UK took a different uh, approach altogether and they said if we can see them and they're visible then we can track them we can you know keep them under control they do our work for us at that time there was never the idea that they were going to be a threat internally of course and then over the next 20-30 years policies have changed especially when homegrown folks started to attack their own country yeah, uh, via terrorist acts like you know whatever 9-11 and all the rest of it. And then it turned like, now we've got to get rid of them all. Now get them, you know, send them back, send them back, send them back. So you've got this generation, this guy who did the, the Manchester bombing uh, thingamajig. If you see the, his parents' generation, his parents' generation were the people who came back, even though they were involved in bona fide yani, uh, jihad, they were completely not involved in terrorism or the concept of terrorism or anything like that. Reached asylum, living here peacefully, thought that they were bringing up their kids the right way. But in actual fact, their kids yeah, and here and there are all you know, going off the handle and doing what they did. So the point is, what's the point of all this? Oh, yeah, there is a point. There is a point. So uh, obviously, so as we were growing up and started practicing, this was the big thing, right? We're looking and being really impressed with the whole movement, with the whole people going to Russia to support Bosnia and all that kind of uh, uh, thing. And one of the key figures who was instrumental 
in holding everything together was a name by, the, by a scholar by the name of Sheikh Abdullah Azzam. And Sheikh Abdullah Azzam, Palestinian, his major success was not just the only getting funds and this and that, whatever, for that jihad. I mean, Americans were beside themselves to support. I don't want to say that he himself saw it. I don't know whether he was tainted in that way. And I don't even know whether that is being tainted. I don't know. But the point is, is that what he was really focused on was uniting people. And there was a major clash culturally between the Afghani Mujahideen, who are hard, hardcore Hanafis, right? Hardcore Diawbandi star Hanafis that never even seen this kind of behavior of hands and this and that and whatever. With all these kind of external modern day Ikhwan, Salafis, Arab kind of contemporary, kind of easygoing kind of folks when it comes to Madhabs, a few Shafis, a few Hanbalis, who are like practicing stuff like these packs had never seen before, right? And, you know, it was clear for the effort that they were really kind of holding each other in suspicion. And it was Abdullah Azam's efforts in teaching people and convincing people, much more so the Arabs than the Pakistan, because Pakistan don't get convinced in that kind of thing. I think we've spoken about this in this class here. When it comes to the madhab, which is the most uh, 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 non-tolerant, what's the word for non-tolerant? Intolerant. Intolerant, yeah? There's no madhab and no expression of the madhab, like the Pakistan that are, the, are, that are more intolerant than them. They're super intolerant. They won't move, change, or anything. And that also reflects their knowledge and their depth. When you don't have knowledge, then you, uh, when you are ignorant, okay, of your deen, you just copy people, then you can pretty much equal that to intolerance. And that's why Ibn Taymiyyah said that very famous statement, which is so important for all of us, yeah, and especially those that are studying at some kind of depth, that, yeah, yeah, that the people of Sunnah, the people who study the deen at a, de- at a proper level, they are the most knowledgeable of the people, and as a result, they are the most merciful of the people. Because knowledge is meant to increase your mercy, because you increase in your knowledge and understanding of what's happening, and therefore you can find solutions for people. And you also understand why people are coming from where they're coming from. So you have an understanding, and so then you in- introduce flexibility, and, 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 and. And you know, there's so much stories of Abdullah Azam and what he used to say to the Arabs, please lower your hands, don't, don't do Rafi Adain, you know. Um, uh, he, would talk, he would often, you know, dhikr beads used to be very politicized. You know, zikr beads, okay. Now obviously we know that's not a sunnah. Rosary beads are Catholic, yani. it's a Catholic tool, right? The, the Catholics introduced this to do their Hail Marys on it, right? They would count their Hail Marys and all their kind of, you know, litanies that they would have. And um, obviously the Muslims at some point, introduced it into their religion. It's not the most serious thing in the world, but it should be clear that it's not the way they would make dhikr. He would remember Allah using his right hand, okay? So that's a sunnah. However, you know, so uh, the packs were a big thing, you know, it's a big thing for them, the whole finger kind of uh, uh, dhikr beads. And so he he would be like, you know, with them, uh, instead of just in being an incendiary kind of starting off a big discussion on the bid'ah and halal and haram of something in the middle of battle and you know where there's bigger issues, he goes, "Why don't you just keep them in your pocket and keep them in your pocket?" And and he, I remember he was so like yesterday, he used to say that keep them in your pocket, and when you put your hands in your pocket and you feel it, you remember. Yeah, I need to remember Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and don't need to bring it out. And I told you before. I mean, forget the halal haram. It's so lame when you see someone yeah, holding a dhikr bees in front of you. Like, I mean, what, what, you know, what? Give you a bloody round of applause and a blue Peter badge. You know what I mean? Well done. 
It's, so, so, it's, it's embarrassing. I find it so embarrassing. I feel sorry for people who think that it's neat or stylish to be seen with dhikr. Yani dhikr is a personal relationship between you and Allah. And actually what he encouraged people was to get closer to the sunnah, even if the concept of the dhikr beads was sunnah or not. But it's such a great idea. And I went all through university, all through university, keeping dhikr beads in my pocket. I used to remember that. Never used to kind of hold it outside. But whenever, you know, it used to be cold, walking and whatever, put your hand in the thing, feel the beads and you remember it. It's, 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 it's ajib that you use the yani, something which is not from the sunnah to actually make dhikr in a way that wasn't incendiary to people who hate it and not yani, supporting the people who think it's a sunnah getting it out of their minds as well so I just want to say that you know, Abdullah Azam he did an incredible job in unifying hearts to be able to get people to deal with a clear and present danger and that's what you would call a social emergency but that has a, has a very real religious reality Yani the real, and, that's, and that comes from understanding the categorization of what is halal, what is haram, what is sunnah, what is not, what is important, what isn't, what is bid'ah, what isn't. And so once you understand the legal classification, you're able to then make those judgment calls. And of course, this original ruling, though, is so that people know the rules actually in law, so that if you forget, that's what it's meant to be for. Classifications are if you forget, you know, if your mind, mindlessness, you know, or you mindlessly kind of you're praying and you forgot to put your hands there. Or you forgot to raise your hands in salah, for example. Imagine you're a person who believes in Rafi and you forgot to raise your hands. And then when you're giving salam, and then you think, my goodness, I just prayed and I forgot to raise my hands all the way through. In actual fact, I remember at the beginning, I, the imam was in ruku'a, and the imam was in ruku'a, and I rushed into the masjid, and I rushed in saying, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. I, did, I you know, entered the, into the prayer with tahrim, and I went for Allahu Akbar to make intiqal, yani to go into ruku'a. So I caught that. But in the rush and all the stress, I forgot to raise my hands. So, you know, he's now stressed. He thinks, I've got to pray again. And we say to him, brother, you don't need to pray again because the raising of the hands is from a sunnah of the prayer and not from its obligations, not from its arkan, not from its essentials. It's actually a sunnah. The most important essential was to say, Allahu Akbar, which you did, which means you entered the prayer. That's the main function for categorization and, and studying the categories. But now, as I said, with mixed communities, with I want you to know, back in the day, there weren't such a thing as mixed communities. Okay. That's something, that romantic kind of idea, um, but people generally kept to their teacher. So even in areas where there were no madhabs, they would have an imam and the masjid would follow yani, the area or there would be a mufti and he'd be given qada. Everyone would just follow the madhab, nice and simple. Don't have to worry about anything because you've got the Islamic authorities establishing everything everywhere anyway. The law is very clear. It's implemented in the streets, implemented in the homes. You've got yani, people out there in police yani, of a sort going around ensuring that the rules are being uh, applied. And you've got a qadi that's sticking to the fiqh. And so there wasn't really any need to be, you know, uh, what's the word? Kind of uh, experimenting with other madahib and experimenting with deeper fiqh and so on. And you do, when you read some of the books of fiqh, find some interesting uh, back, back and forths between some of the major scholars of Sunnah. I, one that comes to my mind is Qadi Abu Ya'la al Hanbali. Qadi Abu Ya'la, he is a very famous Hanbali scholar and he had yani, game in hadith as well. And you know, he was very, very, I think he was in Syria maybe at that time if I remember correctly, maybe even Palestine, I can't remember, uh, where the location of the story was. I've got Damascus somewhere in the back of my mind as well. But there was always a strength of the Hanbali and the Shafi'i schools in, these, in this kind of area of Sham, of, of, of the Levant, yeah, or this kind of Middle East. And, um, and these Shafi'is, first of all, the Shafi'i and Hanbali school are very close anyway, right? 
And Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, of course, studied with Imam Shafi'i. So there's a lot of yani, synergy there anyway. But there are clear departations yani, when it comes to certain positions. And they used to respect one another a lot. And so what you find is that, um, that they would learn from one another, respect one another. And sometimes if they saw one excel, then they would really like, think, you know, I think it's time to upgrade my mother. Whether it's yani, to go to Shafi'i or to go to Ahmed bin Hanbal. And I remember that Qadr Abu Ya'la was like a polymath. He was someone that everyone really rated and respected. I remember reading this somewhere. I think maybe even in the Fatah of Ibn Taymiyyah, I think maybe he's narrating the story even. Could be, could be. I mean, don't, don't quote me on that, but I think it was Ibn Taymiyyah who's quoting the story. And he's saying that Qadir Abu Ya'la was approached and given a, a request to come to our town, so our hay, our, 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 our like municipality, our little area, and... Um, I've gone through all of your papers and your statements and I'm convinced of your positions. And he, this is the Shafi'i Mufti of that area, okay, who's speaking. And I would like you to come and I want the people to become um, humbly, right? I want you to teach them because I'm convinced of the strength of your arguments. And Abu Ya'ala said and wrote back to him and responded to him, paraphrasing, saying that we don't teach or, or study or believe that the Hanbali school is better or stronger or evidences in order to convert people, okay? In order to change people from what they're upon and what their generations are upon. And, you know, I mean, this is not some kind of game about, you know, proving who's right. Because ultimately, a madhab is meant to be a tool of ease. And so it might be great, a person coming in from abroad and telling you X, Y, Z, and, you know, rocking your socks off and, you know, blowing your mind with great statements and evidences. But then he's gone tomorrow. Then what happens? Then, Yanni, when you need to get solutions for your day-to-day scenarios, you're not going to be able to get hold of my guy. And so you're going to then be forced back to your normal, normative, Mawalvi, Imam, Madhab. And so what you understand now is that yani, fiqh is so much bigger and more than the legal evidences. It's got to be practical. That's why Imam Malik, yani, when Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, he, he said that, you know what, I'm going to take your muwatta and I'm going to print so many uh, copies, I'm going to make it the official manual of the state. I'm going to make it the official manual of the state. And you know what, I'll tell you straight, if you're going to choose a manual of the state, you choose the muwatta. Because it's hardcore quality hadith, very short chains, almost every single statement in it authentic, full of the statements of Sahaba, full of the statements of Tabi'een, coming from the earliest of the Imams, Mamalik, coming from the seat of power, Madinatul Munawwara. Literally, we have the Prophet's resting place, and he would be sitting next to it teaching. You can't think of a greater Imam, greater knowledge, greater closeness, greater principles. Abdullah ibn Umar is his main chain. Abdullah ibn Umar, Nafi' and Abdullah ibn Umar, and in and three people yani, directly to the Prophet from Imam Malik and he was able to get to the Prophet via three uh, 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 literally just three stops in the chain and so you'd think that that is the one book if we were going to choose one that even the rest of the Ummah wouldn't have a major problem with we have the Hanafi scholars that Muhammad bin Hassan al-Shaybani for example who is the student and the companion of Imam Abu Hanifa an Imam Mujtahid by himself who narrates the most famous narration of Muatta of Imam Malik you have these people studying with Shafi'i. Shafi'i studied with Muhammad bin Hassan. You got yani, so much. So I'm saying the Muatta would have been the perfect book to become the state manual and be spread everywhere. But, but Malik refused. Malik refused because he said, you know, I didn't, I didn't do this yani, so that it becomes a state manual. And this is just my efforts. And there are so many that I haven't been to Iraq yet. I haven't cleaned Iraq out. Yani, there's so much knowledge over there. And, you know, Mecca's got so much knowledge. The Madhab of Abdullah ibn Abbas went and, you know... Uh, 
settled there and there's so much knowledge there and Abdullah bin Mas'ud and Ali bin Abi Talib and Ubay bin Ka'ab who've gone to Iraq and so much knowledge there. Yeah, I've got Abdullah bin Umar, I've got all his other companions, I've got Abdullah bin Zubair, I've got these other companions who have left so much and they're younger companions as well. They've got a lot of knowledge. But it's, there's, there's other stuff out there as well. My point being that we study fiqh, okay, to get to the truth of an issue and we go through the evidences and we look at and we don't show any disrespect when we say that we respect that opinion, but the class position is this, because we're nothing about yani, these, these people. The fiqh is flexible. And we think we choose what we choose is best yani, from a legal point of view, but there's a very massive dose of social need in there as well. Social, cultural need. And that's very, very important when you're studying fiqh. Okay? Unlike, for example, when you're studying Quran. Right? Unlike when you're studying Quran, where it's no messing about, you've got to be very careful about what you say about the word of Allah. Personal re- reflection, as I said yesterday, in the introduction to the class, that's something else. That's called tadabbur. That's reflection. Yani any ayah can set any kind of process off in your mind and you think about it. But tafsir, to say that this word of Allah means this, you've got to be so careful. You know when someone says, this verse does not mean to actually walk, or does not mean to actually hit, or actually this, or actually that. You're thinking, you've got to be very confident that you're saying that, because you're speaking on behalf of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, as Shaykh Abdul Ghaffar says, you know, when, uh, when it, uh, someone makes some joke at him because he pronounced something wrong, or he says something incorrect in fiqh, so his immediate answer is the same. He goes, this isn't Quran. You know? Whenever yani, he, someone you know, pulls him up, he goes, this isn't Quran, you know. And he's right. He's absolutely right. The expression we have, like, uh, okay. Go on. It's just a general expression. General, yani across everything. If someone disagrees with you on anything, just throw that back at them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it works. It's true. It's it's, it's a killer. It's a killer uh, conversation closer, isn't it? You know what I mean? What would you say back to that? Okay then. <laughs> Eddie Murphy said, "Okay." <laughs> so. Um, so I want to first talk about the right on the left, the concept and the discussion of right on the left, especially with the presence, there's a big elephant in the room. The big elephant in the room is neither right or neither left involved. There's no left on right. The famous hadith of Abdullah bin Mas'ud, okay, uh, where is that narrated? Uh, Abdullah wa Ani bin Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu and the Nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam marra bihi wa huwa wadi'un shimanuhu ala yaminihi fa akhada yaminuhu fa wada'aha ala shimalihi rawahu Abu Dawood narrated uh, in chapter 1 uh, of the Sunan of Abu Dawood um, this is uh, the copy of the book that, of Mughni that I'm using doesn't have the hadith number so it's going to be using the volume number uh, volume 1, hadith number 174, the hadith of the Lord Mas'ud that the Prophet ﷺ passed by me once when I was praying and I had my left hand on my right hand and so he took my right hand. No statement, no speaking, no interruption, carried on praying. He took my right hand and put it on my left hand and that was it. Okay, so uh, that is a hadith which is full of so much knowledge not only do we now know it's incorrect completely to have left on right, and right has to be on left. Not only do we, uh, not only that, we also learn of the position called a wada. And I just introduced this yesterday, uh, last week. Okay, that when it comes to the hands, only two things or concepts are authentically narrated from the Prophet Are we cl- is nice and clear on this? 
You can see it, yeah? Yeah. The mic's not in the way. No. So this is wada. I'm not using, I'm not, don't, don't kill me. If my dad's watching dad, I don't, I don't mean my chest, okay? <laughs> I'm just only using as a background, yeah? So uh, this is wada. When you place and there's no grasping, there's no clasping, there's no holding, because that's exactly what qabda is, the second one. Or what we would say in Urdu, qabz. You know, we say put qabza on something, yeah? So when someone puts a qabza on something, it means they've taken it over. You've, you know, you've, you've, you know, so qabza, uh, qabz means to, to grasp your hand, okay? To grasp it, clasp it, hold it, support it. But wada has no supporting, no nothing. The hand is doing, the, the left hand is solid against yani, the back, okay, the background. And then your hand is on it, okay. And we're going to look at a few narrations and I just want to read out this very nice passage and translate it from um, Imam Ibn Qudama, the Imam of the Hanbali Madhab and what he mentions about all of this. So these two things are two different positions in reality. Right on the left, okay, right on the left and then holding. And as you're going to come to see, it's also right arm or right hand on the left arm. So actually the arm now comes into play as well. But not in a grasping, but on a holding position. And this, of course, as we mentioned last week, the grasping of the elbow, or even what some people do, which is like a double grasp of some sort. There's no basis for that. Then we'll we'll start talking about positions on the body. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, Imam Ibn Qudam says, actually in page... Uh, on page, just for those who want a reference, volume two, uh, page one hundred and forty of Al Mughni, and this is the uh, the um, uh, this is. I'm sure this is the Mu'assas al Risala. Oh no, it's not. Dar Alam al Kutub. Anyway, Dar al Alam al Kutub version. Anyway, he said that as for the putting of the right on the left in Salah, then it is from it is the Sunnah according to the vast majority of the people of knowledge. That has been narrated from Ali ibn Abi Talib, from, Abi, Abi Huray, from Abu Huraira, Imam al-Nakha'i, okay, who was the student, of course, uh, of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, and Abi Mijlaz, who from the Tabi'een, was Sa'id ibn Jubair from the Tabi'een, was Thawri, Imam Sufyan al-Thawri, that is, that's one of the major mujtahid imams, was Shafi'i, Imam al-Shafi'i, was Ashabu al-Ra'i, so that basically means all of the people of Iraq, like Abu Hanifa and uh, the, his companions, like Muhammad bin Hassan al-Shaybani and Qadi Abu Yusuf and so on. Wahakahu ibn al-Munzir and Malik and even ibn al-Munzir. This is like yani just to show the strength of this position. He even narrated it from Imam Malik, which we know actually is questionable because Malik is the famous uh, opposite. But anyway, so even narrated from Malik, and it's also the most apparent, obvious. Uh, even though, even though, sorry, big pardon. Even though the apparent, obvious position of the Maliki Madhab is to what we call irsal or sadal, which is to have the hands at the side, because it's not touching anything; it's just flowing. It's just flowing hands. Okay, that position of the hands at the side is not made up, as Ibn Qudama continues. And that has been narrated, hands at the side, so no hand on, no right on left, just hands at the side, has been narrated from Abdullah ibn Zubair and Al-Hassan, Al-Hassan al-Basri. As for us, he's talking about us, meaning the Hanbali school. What has been narrated by Qabisa ibn Hulb, radiallahu anhu, an abihi, rahimullah an abihi, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, qal, 
وسلم, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, ya ummuna, um, He said that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, would, would take his left hand with his right hand. I'm saying ya'khudh, okay, in its linguistic, yani take, and I want you to understand that the taking here means to, to hold it, to grab it, to support it, all of then ya'khudh. And if I say, take this bag, you're going to hold it, you're going to support it. If I say, take my hand, then you're going to clasp it. So ya'khudh is definitely hold, uh, indicating more than just a placing, but a, some kind of real supportive action as well. This, is, this hadith is narrated by Imam Tirmidhi, and he said, this is a hadith on Hassan. This is a good hadith. And this was acted upon by the companions of the Prophet ﷺ and the tabi'een and the generation that followed them. This hadith is narrated um, um, uh, by Imam uh, Tirmidhi and it's narrated by Ibn Majah as well, hadith number 266 in volume 1 and by Imam Ahmed as well. This hadith is sahih. Um, it is also narrated in a hadith but narrated by Sahal ibn Sa'ad and it's Sa'ad Sa'adi radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He said, كان الناس يؤمرون أن يضع الرجل يده اليمنى على ذراعه اليسرى في الصلاة. قال قال أبو حازم لا أعلمه إلا ينمي ذلك إلى رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم رواه البخاري. So in the hadith of Sahal uh, radiallahu anhu, he said that the people were commanded that a man would take his right hand and put it, put it, and yada'a, put it, or place it on his left arm, okay, ala dhira'ihi al-yusra, okay, so he would put it on his left arm in the prayer. I do not know except that this narration came from the Prophet So I want you just to understand this hadith. This is narrated by Bukhari. Okay, this is narrated by Bukhari. And then ref- the reference for this is that uh, in the chapter of the placing of the right on the left, in the chapter of the Adhan, in Sahil Bukhari, volume 1, 188. It's also narrated, and this is the stunning thing, by Imam Malik in his Muatta. Just so that yani, people realize, like you know, people thought that Imam Malik didn't know this hadith when he decided to do this action. He very much knew about the presence and the existence of this hadith. And it is in the Muatta, volume 1, hadith number 159. It's also narrated by Imam Ahmed. Actually, this hadith is narrated in so many places. Now, the key thing about this hadith, when you study hadith, is that Sahal is making an observation of the people as opposed to saying that the Prophet ﷺ said this. Right? So if you look at the wording, he said that the people, this is Sahal ibn Sa'ad, yani speaking, radiallahu anhu himself, he goes, the people, كان الناس يؤمرون أن يضع الرجل يده واليمنى على ذراعه اليسرى في الصلاة. That's all he said. He said that the people were commanded to, that, you know, to a man that a person would place his right hand, place his right hand on his left arm. And of course, left arm is going to be a moment of discussion because actually all of this is the arm. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily mean the top of the arm or near the elbow or on the forearm or on the wrist or whatever, but this is all the arm. But normally, when you're going to take, when you're going to say, took his left, his right hand, and then use the word arm, then you kind of like disqualified yani, the, the, the hand, if that makes sense. Because you would say, you'd say left hand, 
if he's using take right hand on left hand, but he said left. So we're talking something of more than just the actual hand itself. And so that's a particular position. Narrated by Bukhari. And it was Abu Hazim. And Abu Hazim is a tabi'i. Okay? Abu Hazim is not the companion himself. He is the one who said, I do not know of this narration being anything except being said directly by the Prophet ﷺ. Now that's very important what he says here. And that's why uh, this hadith is a little bit controversial. So just so that you can appreciate its, its, its strength. Okay, the tabi'i is not saying I heard the Prophet ﷺ say it. He is saying that I have no doubt in my mind that there's no scholar that has ever said, and scholar by that he means companions, that ever told me that this came from any other source other than directly from the Messenger of Allah, even though no one actually told me that he said this. So he's just quoting a companion who said that people were ordered. Now when you break it down, people were ordered by who? You can only be ordered by the, companion, by the Prophet ﷺ. And these are things that happen, these are, this is happening amongst the companions themselves. So the hadith is strong. There's no doubt about it. And it is an action of the Prophet ﷺ because all the other hadith make it very clear that the Prophet ﷺ would put his right on the left. And, uh, and there are other hadith as well. I don't need to uh, go uh, into this. Um, and there's one other, just one other narration that I want to mention. Um, uh, uh, Imam Ibn Qudama, he said... He said, and it is recommended And it is recommended that he places it on his qur, which we said is this here, right? Which is the bone which is on top of the wrist, yeah? Uh, that comes down the thumb. So obviously the wrist has got two bones at each side. You've got the qursur, which is following the left, the small finger. And you've got the qur, which is following the thumb. And the thumb, the, 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 the qur, part was, was covered and that which is close to it because of the hadith of Wa'il ibn Hujar radiallahu anhu anhu wasafa salat al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in that he was describing the prayer of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa qala fi wasfihi and he said when he was describing that he suddenly then he placed he placed his right hand on the top of the palm of his left and al-rusugh wa sa'id yani that the Prophet ﷺ placed his right hand on the left hand and the rusukh and sa'id. Yani this is the sa'id, this is the rusukh that, that we said yesterday, last week, remember? We said the rusukh is the joint, if you like, in between the two kind of side bones. What did we call it in English? We kind of called it trapeziums and all kinds of stuff, right? It was all kind of weird. And ulna. Uh, the radius and the ulna are the long bones, right? Yes. But when we're talking about what's hanging out the is the hanging out, is the hanging out the end of the radius and ulna? Yeah, the radius and ulna. Is it? It's the end. Was sticking out. Hmm. So then, there's like, yani in that picture that we had. Where's that picture, Shas? You got it there, the English one. Uh, yeah, I can. Yeah. No, only if it's quick. Yeah, I don't want to waste time on it. But I want to understand whether that is. What you can feel at the end, which is sticking out, yeah, so yeah, and, you know, and then there's an indentation before the actual. Yeah, the indentation, the small, you can't feel the small bones. So those small bones. So when I, so I'm now above, and then when I roll down, I can feel the ends of yeah. the of the radius and the ulna, right? So what is the? That's considered the wrist. That's the radius Yeah, so that's what we're feeling then. The end of the radius, okay, which is so the end of the radius is the core. 
which they call... The, so the trapezium is actually the next underneath it in the metacarpal zone. Right. So it's not the trapezium at all. Huh? Yeah, it's not the trapezium at all. It's the actual, what you're feeling. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. So you're actually, it's, it is the radius. It's the end of the radius. And then those metacarpals or the ends of the radius and ulna is the rusur, that whole area. And that's what you're holding. I, it isn't, of course not. I mean, I, I remember what we said last week, and again, I'll repeat it. In the Hanafi school, you are taught to a T how you are meant to hold it. They're to such an extent that they say you've got to find your wrist, and you've got to get your little finger and your big one, and you make the circle around it so it's properly encircled and now fully supported. And the three fingers here that are going across have now ensured that you've done everything. You've touched your qur, you've touched your qursur, you're holding your rusuk, and your side, yani, has got yani, your dhira, your arm, has also got a bit of flesh as well. It's genius, to be honest, if you think about it from the Hanafi school. They don't mess about, right? And you remember what we said, that when you see scholars going into such immense detail, right? It's almost always their own ishtihad for the sake of the masses who can't be given the simple statement just like what Widad just said. Do we need to go into that much detail? The masses, shout out, yes, Right? Whereas the people that we need, the, and, and the irony is that they dumbed down the people. And they dumbed them down so much that they believed that they were dumb. And that's why you have just loads of sheep just following. They don't have the confidence. You know, we were discussing this, we discussed this obviously last year as well, when it comes to the intention for the, for the prayer. And people who recite the intention out, yeah, me, do rakat, ye partaun, this, that, fla, fla. You see, Imam, Kapiche, you know, fla. You know, uh, as everyone knows, no evidence, not from the sunnah, not from the companions, not from whatever. But people have told the people because the people, they assume and they tell them, you don't have the ability to be able to actualize in your heart and mind about what you're, what you're here to pray. So you've got to say this. And they told it to them so many times that you've got to say this that the people believed it. And now there are people, Wallah, yani, you, will speak, you will go to a person and say, by the way, you know that this is not from the sunnah at all, you don't need to. And he'll say you know what, I didn't know that, and I accept it, but I have to say it because my prayer doesn't feel complete. My prayer doesn't feel complete. If you ever wanted the dictionary definition of bid'ah, that is it. That you believe, listen, you believe that your legitimate legal act of worship is legitimately, legally incomplete without you adding a completely new and innovative religious act. That is the dictionary definition of what's called bid'ah. You know, when you believe literally mentally that my act is not complete unless I do this, which begs the question, what did the Prophet ﷺ believe then? If he didn't do it, so, and told you that you shouldn't be bringing any new issues into the religion. So, in one, at some point it is serious, at another point it's not so serious because they've learned it from scholars and the scholars only did it to help them. They go into this immense detail, breaking it down, making them memorize all these phrases and whatever, whatnot, so they can be super focused and in the prayer super focused. And, you know, uh, if you bleed the, munch, the amount of a dirham, then your wudu is broken. And if you, like the Shafi'i say, if you scratch yourself three times, then your prayer is broken. Because if you tell people you shouldn't move in the prayer, right? So don't move around in the prayer. Which is what the sunnah is. Just don't move around. Just don't be silly. Okay, you're praying in front of Allah. That's what you should leave it as. But people, they move around and they start to lose confidence and they say, you know what, you need to tell me something more. 
So tell me how many times I can move. So the scholars are like, all right, uh, three? You know what I'm trying to say? There's nothing in the Sunnah for three, but I want you to understand why three is there. And why they used itch? Because they said, what's the most common popular reason? It'll be an itch. And, 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 you know, when you see people not moving their feet one inch in the prayer at all, like that, because that's what they've been told. Everything has been told. And people, uh, unfortunately, they have, they just, they just, they just pro- conditioned, programmed to feel that they've got no right to question or ask or check or whatever. So that's, uh, that's what happens. Um, so the point is, is that, and if you just look, uh, 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 look at actually what the proper imams are saying, right? He says, let him place, it is recommended to put it on the qur, and that which is close to it. He didn't have to go into this, that, whatever. And he didn't say you've got to hold it like this, that, and that's enough. And I'm saying that if you don't hold it at all, it's not a problem. Yani the point is, is that you put your right on your left, either as placing, so this is fine. That's fine. Yeah? So, yani, the, you, you put it yani, so that it's, at least you can say that it's covering. Yeah? Or it's covering, or it's covering, or it's covering. Or you hold on to something. You're holding on. The key is that you recognize that what shouldn't be done. So this is not, you know, you see some, especially women do this. Women do this a lot. Right? They, they kind of extend the kind of uh, I don't know what they, but you know what I mean. They extend it this way by, by kind of you know. So that, this is not right hand on left hand. That's right fingers on left fingers. Yeah. So it's got to be at least something. So if you grasp there and you didn't touch there, that's okay. I want you to know that the class position does not condition you having to, and even the humbly position. And Ibn Qudamah says, "Wa yustahabu." It is recommended to grab the... And why is he saying that? Just so that it can be more complete and more full and more in. So, again, for those people who want to know what the sunnah is in terms of actual uh, holding, then it is holding your hand. Your hand mustn't be, you know, like this. As we said, it can't be just, you know, flapping around. It's got to be against the chest. It's got to be supported by the chest itself and not become just loose. So you can hold the hand, hold the hand, hold this, or... Place, place would be placing it there, placing it there, placing it there. Okay, so that's the um, that's that. Now back to Malik. Why is it, man? He's he's put the hadith in Muatta. He knows about the hadith. He knows that the, the other famous narration that the Prophet sallallahu said that the, the, the that uh, where is that narration? Well, a very nice hadith actually. Where is it? Yeah, and Nabi said that us prophets, we prophets, we have been commanded to uh, uh, to hasten the uh, uh, iftar, hasten the iftar. So when we break our fast and they don't delay, and to delay the suhoor. Uh, and to place our right hands on our left hands in salah. And this hadith has been narrated by Ibn Hibban. It's a very famous hadith and it has a good chain. The chain is authentic. So, um, you know, and this hadith, I also know that Imam Malik was aware of this hadith because he discussed it. So the question is, how is it then that he himself clearly has his hands at his right hand, you know, at his sides? 
So the first thing, let's get rid of the nonsense. The big idea, of course, that's amongst the people is that he was beaten because he took political positions against the state and that he was beaten so much that his arms were broken and he couldn't place. That's a fabrication. It's not true. It's not legal. It's not nothing. No, not, it's nothing like that at all. Uh, in actual fact, um, Imam Malik and a number of the Maliki scholars, they took the legal position that the last narrated scene dominant position in Medina after the death of the Prophet amongst certain companions, Abdullah ibn Zubair being one of them, so young, so well respected, such a great like a family name, very close to the Prophet he prayed with his hands at his side, and therefore for Imam Malik, who for in his evidence methodology, the action of the people of Medina was very, very important. So even if he had a hadith that would state something from the Sunnah, if he saw the people around him only 150 years on, like, you know what I mean? It's not like the Sunnah has disappeared, and they're all doing something different. And I just want you to just for a second realize that actually all of the madahib have a value for Medina. Right? There are so many hadith that talk about the excellence of Medina, the protection of when you're in Medina, the excellence of the scholars in Medina. And remember when the scholars are discussing amongst themselves in the other countries about certain measures. Well, how big is a sa'a? How big is a this? How big is a that? How heavy is a this? How wide is that? Then they would go back and they could see physical remnants. This is what we used to use yani, at the time of the companions. This is what the companions used at the time of the Prophet and to pour this, pour that. So all of the scholars recognize that you don't treat Medina like you treat Mecca and you don't treat Medina like you treat Iraq. It has extra value in legalities. However, none of them other than the Maliki school, Imam Maliki, and it took the importance of the Medinan school to the level where if there's a hadith, which is authentic, but will prefer the school of hadith, uh, the school of the, the, the actions of the people of Medina over it. And I am simplifying it, and it's not like Malik Yani would throw the hadith to the side, but here you can see that he knows the hadith, and he doesn't throw the hadith to the side. He thinks this hadith was authentic, this definitely happened, but Abdullah Zubair's action is more beloved to me. I've seen it happen as well. That can't be fabricated either. He's still alive in my time as well, so I'm going to go with that. And actually, none of my contemporaries and my adversaries in fiqh actually think that this is going to invalidate my prayer anyway, and so we're going to go with it. And that's what he went with. And a number of the major uh, 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 Maliki scholars went against him. Yani Abdullah, uh, 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 Abdullah uh, um, uh, Ibn Abdul Bar, okay, Imam Ibn Abdul Bar, who's from the most famous of the, uh, Hanbali, the Maliki scholars, especially in Hadith, he was someone yani, who uh, refuted this position. As a Maliki, die-hard Maliki, not refuted, but yani, uh, showed. And so many Malikis, my own Maliki teachers themselves, okay. I remember when I went to study with Sheikh Muhammad Salim, Al-Dood, the uncle of Muhammad bin Hassan al-Dado, he himself yani, used to pray with his hands on his che- right, on his left, uh, on his chest, a hardcore Maliki he is. So it's understood that the Malikis themselves also believe that the Sunnah, as is the majority of the scholars, okay, and I don't mean majority 90%, I mean like 51%, because this is very contentious, this issue, because we still haven't talked about position. But that right hand on left hand is 99% of the scholars. 
99. As for position, then the, Mal- the, 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 the Malikis of today, and certainly a lot of the kind of correcting Malikis, what we call the Muhaqqiqin of the Madhab, those that authenticate their own Madhab's positions, they review their own schools, and they differ with their own Imams, like Ibn Qudama does with Imam Ahmed sometimes, and he knows that Imam Ahmed said this, but the Madhab should say that. And like the Hanafi school is, the, the position of Imam Abu Hanifa is different from the Hanafi Mu'tamad, the Hanafi established position. And so we see a number of Maliki scholars, Muhammad bin Hassan Dido himself, he said that we accept that some of the companions themselves, they did this action, and we believe in it, but the Sunnah is more correct, the Hadith are authentic, they cannot be denied, no evidence they've been abrogated, no evidence to show that they've been cancelled at the end, they were late Hadith as well, it's not like yani, you can see a clear chronology, where at the very beginning of the Da'wah of the Prophet ﷺ, he would pray with his right hand on his left, and then at the end of his life, that then came to the sides, we don't have that any evidence of that chronology, and so therefore, we say, despite the authenticity of these actions, despite the permissibility of praying with the hands at the side, I do that sometimes as well. I pray with my hands at my side. Why? Not because I believe it's the sunnah and not because I don't believe that it's more authentic to pray with the right hand the left hand, but because I do believe the companions did this and I also do believe personally, as some of my own hadith teachers do, that the Prophet ﷺ would have prayed with his hands at his side at some occasions, maybe even momentarily. Yani it's inconceivable for me that companions with authentic chains would do an action in prayer that they didn't see the Prophet ﷺ do, even if the Prophet ﷺ didn't state or tell the companions to do it. So that's first. Second, I can rationally speaking see a very clear case for why you would have your hands at your side. You have a man here, Alihi Afdulullah who would pray four hours consecutively, right? And his feet would swell up. Are you telling me with someone whose feet are swelling up, he can keep his hands like this without moving? You could be kidding me, right? And we know that the Prophet ﷺ would move in his prayer, yani, to relax and to, you know, someone come, he would open the door, yani, to push, yani, into hajjud prayer, night prayer. We know that moving in the sunnah is not like moving in the fard. You shouldn't move in the fard, but when you're praying by yourself, and, you know, lots of flexibility, right? So I can see our hands going down. I can see, I, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can envisage it. You know what I'm saying? So, and that's, and you know what, if you can't envisage it, then let me say, that's why all the scholars agreed that the position of the hands is not an obligatory aspect of the prayer. Right? So, that's I think yani, what I'd like to say about right on left, that it is sunnah, and that you cover as much of the wrist as you can when you are holding it, and that is yani, so uh, clear from the uh, hadith and so on. Uh, so let's now just actually now take what Sheikh Uthameen says. So at the top of page 32, he said, so um, uh, he says that what the author, what Sheikh Uthameen now speaking, um, he goes, what the author intended uh, by saying that he holds the core of his left hand, he means the joint, the whole joint. So we've already said that. And the author, may Allah have mercy upon him, He's also telling us that the sunnah is to grasp the qur'a, but it is, um, but also the sunnah has established that to place the right hand upon the arm without grasping has also been narrated. Therefore, hatan shifatan al-ula qabd wa thaniyatu wada. These are two actions of the sunnah and both in play. So he says. Uh, and then he says, uh, uh, what about people who fold, hold their uh, elbows? 
He goes, no, this has no basis. No one should hold their uh, elbows and so on. And he then quotes the hadith that I said, that hadith of Sahil, that, Nabi وسلم, that, that, that the people were commanded to put their right hands on their left arms in the prayer, narrated by Bukhari. Okay? That hadith, by the way, is actually 740. I'm looking in another tahqiq version. All right. Question is now, do you have time? Is it 9.15 or 9.30? 30. 30. Happy days. Right. Okay, let's talk about then the, uh, the, uh, anything on the hand now, or should we just move straight to the next part of where it goes? Okay, so then the next word is surratihi underneath his navel. And obviously that comes as a big shock, yani, because people think of the Hanbali school, they think of the Salafi school, they think of people who hands up here, and then the Hanbalis are now busting, yani, it goes underneath the navel. And they always thought that's only the Hanafis who do that, right? In actual fact, what you're now going to realize is that the Hanbalis have always supported the concept of the narrations that establish the hands being underneath the navel. First of all, what is the navel? It's your belly button. Okay, so you take your belly button and draw a line all the way around, and that is basically the navel. And I remember listening to a dars from Sheikh Muhammad uh, al-Hassan, uh, and he was saying actually, and it's well known that the most famous hadith in this issue is the hadith of Ali ibn Abi Talib. Actually, let's also read again what Ibn Qudama uh, says, because it's nice to just get a pure Hanbali kind of take on it. So he says, he starts off, اختلفت he goes, the narrations concerning where you put these hands, right over left, yani they differ. And it has been narrated on, from Ahmed himself that he himself would place his hands underneath his, uh, uh, his navel. That's Imam Ahmed, his own personal practice. And that is because this has been narrated from Ali ibn Abi Talib and Abu, Abu Hurairah radiallahu an, and uh, Abi Majlis, and Al-Nakha'i, and Al-Thawri, and Ishaq ibn Rahway as well. Okay? And that is why, because of the hadith narrated by Ali radiallahu anhu, قال, من السنة وضع اليمين على الشمال تحت السرة. That's the statement of Ali. It is from the Sunnah. So no statement of the Prophet ﷺ, but his clear, strong assertion. It is from the Sunnah to place the right on the left underneath the navel. Underneath the navel. Okay? And so that has been narrated by Imam Ahmed and narrated by Imam Abu Dawood as well. In the Musnad, it is narrated in volume 1, hadith 110. And in the Sunan of Abu Dawood, it is narrated in volume 1, hadith number 174. Now, listen, listen to what he then continues to say. This basically goes back to the Sunnah of the Messenger. And because it's also a statement of the companions, those companions that we mentioned, Abu Hurairah and Ali. And also narrated from Imam Ahmed is that he placed his two hands above his, na- his navel. And this is the statement of Sa'id ibn Jubair, the, compan- the, the, the Tabi'i, and a Shafi'i. And this is because of what Wa'il ibn Hujr narrated. Wa'il ibn Hujr radiallahu anhu, he said, I saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I saw him place his two hands upon his chest. One over the other. So right over the left on his chest. And I want you to know what the chest is. The chest technically is navel to, to throat or whatever. Or ster- I mean, obviously. Actually, what's the chest uh, anatomically? Is it sternum to ribcage? Is it? 
That's what they call chest. Because the chest has to be a skeletal reality. So the diaphragm can't be included as the chest. It goes up behind the rib cage, but it is not part of the chest. Mm. So what do you guys call, oh, you call it the torso, right? If you're going to be more inclusive and not get bone-based. So where does the torso start? Torso is big. Torso is to the whole frame. So it's not the torso then, because we're talking height. I mean, the point is, the point is, is that according to the fuqaha, they didn't, they differed over what is the kind of, you know, your stomach from navel to kind of bone. Right? I guess that depends upon how big your stomach is. I don't know. If you've got a, if you've got a proper six-pack, yeah? Is there still a gap? There's got to be a gap between your, your, your belly button and your thingy. And your, 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 your um, bottom of your rib cage. Right? I, I, obviously, I don't have a six-pack, so I can't tell you that. Who's got six-pack proper? Adila. Adila. Come on, bro. Check it out. Can you just lift up his thingy and have a look here? <laughs> Use your fingers, I'm serious. How much space is there between belly button and bottom of the ribcage? I love the way Islam is checking his, like he's got a six pack. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he's like oh, let me just check it. All right, bruv. <laughs> I've got an 18 pack in here, bruv, don't worry. Yes, bruv. It's all rock hard. It's all rock hard, yeah. I mean, there's a gap. There's a gap, right? And. At the time of the Prophet ﷺ, not many people had big stomachs, but a number of people did. Just so that you know, a number of people had big stomachs. Because big stomachs is not some necessarily sign of luxury and whatever. It's, not, it's also yeah, uh, poor diet or poor food or whatever, whatnot. Yeah? So anyway, the point is, is that the chest generally should be understood as above navel to basically underneath the uh, neck. And obviously not so high, so high, so that it looks yeah, like you're strangling yourself. But this is the whole area. So this is now all in play by the hadith of Wa'il. And this hadith has been narrated, and it's, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the one that I know, of course, is the, collection, the, the, the collecting by Ibn Khuzayma, and it is authentic. And here, um, uh, the hadith has been narrated, just so that you can, um, uh, just so that I can give you the reference. Uh, where's the reference, man? Um... I didn't want to use that, that, that narration. Anyway, it's narrated in the Sunan of Abu Dawood and, and then the Sunan of Ibn Khuzayma. So the point is, is that this is what has been now collected. We have an authentic hadith versus a statement of Ali ibn Abi Talib. And the muhaddithin, they differed over the authenticity of the statement of Ali ibn Abi Talib. They said a number of them, like Sheikh al-Bani, for example, okay, who is an authority in hadith, if, even if he's not an authority in fiqh, but he considered the hadith of, of Ali, as did many before him, to be weak. All right, or if not weak, then weaker than the alternative. Because look what then Ibn Qudama then says. Wa'anhu meaning he's already said that Imam Ahmad has been narrated from his companions. They narrated that he prayed with his hands underneath his uh, his uh, his navel. His son is often yani, doing the narrating. Abdullah ibn Ahmad. Okay, then he's been narrated with his hands above the navel, and that that is what he preferred. And then third position. That actually he's free to choose what he wants to do Whether he goes down 
whether he goes up. Because all of those, all of these positions have been narrated. They are narrated positions. And according to Ahmed, authentically. And the issue therefore is flexible. Wasi' means it's very spacious. And lots of space for discussion and debate and so on and so forth. Now, that's according to Ahmed. According to the Muhaddithin, for example, if you look at what Imam uh, Sheikh Al-Bani said, Sheikh Al-Bani, he said that not a single hadith in the issue of the hands, okay, he says, uh, for example, in his description of the, in his book, the description of uh, the prayer of the Prophet ﷺ, that he would place his right on his, the left palm over his wrist and forearm and commanded his companions to do so, and sometimes he would grasp them, and he would, in the narration that we're talking about, and he would place them upon his chest. Hadith which he says, narrated by Abu Dawood, and Ibn Khuzayma, in his Sahih, in uh, hadith number 54, in volume 1, and also by Imam Ahmed, who narrated it as well, and by Abu al-Sheikh, in Tariq Asbahan, وَحَسَّنَ أَحْدَ سَنِيدَ تِرْمِذِي and also in one chain that's also been collected by Imam Tirmidhi. And then he says that also the meaning of this hadith has been collected in the... You see, I like this statement actually. You know, people diss Yani Sheikh Lalbani for his fiqh. But listen to this one. He goes, and its meaning has been narrated in Bukhari and Muatta. What do you think he means by that? <coughs> huh? Titles? The titles? No. Opinion? No. He goes, its meaning... This is Sheikh Lalbani speaking. He goes, the hadith of the hands on the chest have been narrated in blah blah blah. And its meaning has been narrated in the Muatta and in Bukhari. What do you think he means by that? No. No, no. Think about it. Huh? No, no. No, no, think about it logically. What is the hadith that we mentioned in Bukhari? That's where you start. No, 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 the other one. Uh huh. No, 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 no. That's that's not the one in Bukhari. That the right hand went on the left arm. So now think. Think, think. Logically. Pull this back. No, pull this back. Watch this. Is it a done time yet? When? How long? Time now? Two minutes. Um, so, have a look at this. Okay? If this is... So, if you look at that hadith, if the right hand is going on left arm, you see how unlikely that is? Can you see what Sheikh Lebani is saying? Meaning that if, if we're going to accept that a person can place his left on his right, then it couldn't possibly be under there because your whole body would have to, it'd have to be something far more comfortable. And so that's why he says that the meaning of this or the interpretation of yani, being on the chest has got to be understood because if the Bukhari and uh, uh, Malik said right hand on left arm, it couldn't be underneath because you have to go like this. Look how unnatural that position is. You get what I'm saying? Please. So, yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat>
Right, okay, so to then continue, well done, Salange. Salange, yani, uh, uh, Salange, yani, got it right. Page 36. Salange, we're on page 36 at the moment. But Salange, but, um, yeah, that was, that, yeah, that was before, that was before, yeah. Um, but uh, Salange got it right in terms of, of it being uh, physically impossible. I've just seen your comment rule here, by the way. I'm glad that you've given me permission to eat chocolate, although I'm not going to lie. I wasn't waiting for your permission, but you know, it was polite to ask. Because I know it's going to get off. <clears throat> we could probably send her some of these strawberry rings. <laughs> or I could have them. Right, okay, what questions do we have? Do we move on? Are we good? What's that? When you mentioned raising the, uh, of the hands and the salah is valid, did you mean only raising before going into ruku or also takbirtul ihram? Actually, I mean both. Actually, any raising of the hands. We're going to come to that obviously in the right time. There's no place in the prayer where the raising of the hands is a condition. Okay? It's a sunnah at the beginning, and it is a differed over sunnah later. Okay? But I think we covered that, didn't we? Did we not cover that? Yani, when we spoke about raising the hands at the end of last year, no? Is that, is it, uh, yeah, uh, it's important that, that we know that. And also, I just want to quickly say on the whole women situation. You know the, um, you know what I love about Lala, the chief? He knows the right time to make an entrance. He tried to do it so quietly. But how is he going to walk in without Yanni me not knowing that my guy comes just in time for cake? You're having a laugh, bro. You know what I'm going to make you do? And literally just sit there for an hour and a half, Yanni, as if you were in lesson, yeah, before you can touch the cake. Do you think this is in bowling, just take the cake? Right, so do you get? Do you understand? Uh, no, sorry. So I just wanted to say that when it comes to these positions, all of these positions between men and women, it is the same if you are following the sunnah. 
If you're following the evidences, there's not a single indication that when they're raising their hands up to him. Remember we said, as a recap for those people who might forget last year, because that this is the same chapter, the same paragraph we're still on. Now when it comes to the raising of the hands, it is authentically narrated to raise the hands up to the ears, authentically narrated to raise it up to the shoulders, and these are the rough areas that you also place your hands when you're in sajda, and that the hands are, fingers are not outstretched, they're like that, and they're not yani, pulled in, they're open, and that this, in case I didn't mention it there, right, this raising of the hands is a sunnah all the way through, and of course I mentioned it, because this is wuyu sunnu, yani it is a sunnah, meaning it is not obligatory, that's the whole yani, uh, uh, chapter. But also that every raising of the hands throughout the prayers is sunnah as well. And also when it comes to women, you'll see that even the humbly school, although it hasn't spoken about it here yet, because that's a big thing that comes later, and it will be covered by one statement, uh, one small paragraph that, and women pray like this, and it will change everything that we've studied, right? And I've spoken about this before, that in general when it comes to the female prayer, the imams, Imam Ahmed from them, despite knowing there's not a single hadith that indicates that there's a difference. In actual fact, the contrary, having evidences from the female companions, so Umm Darda radiallahu ta'ala anha, Imam Ahmed knows of authentic narrations from Umm Darda that she would also raise her hands yani, up to here like this. And yet, Imam Ahmed's advice is that she raises like this. Like all the imams. All of the imams, as I said before, they see the female body as something that must not be opened up. In every position, that everything, modesty is all about closing. Bodies over a little bit, bodies hunched a little bit, hands are always covering the chest, hands are uh, uh, never do the, 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 um, yeah, the underarms are never displayed, they're always kept any tight to the thing. So if there is any rafa, it is like this, yes, it's never like that. When they're in the ruku'a, it's not spreading out like a man would. Yeah, it will be kind of gathered in and hunched together, and even the back doesn't need to be so straight. When she stands back up, it would also be like here, right? When she goes into sajda, it's like a curled up kind of reality. So it's not open like the man would be. And the, you can see the female anatomy seems to make sense to follow these positions, which is why all the imams, they, they agreed on it. Despite knowing, A, nothing from the Prophet ﷺ to indicate a difference for females, Except in the obvious places. So for example, in the congregation, in the saying of Ameen, the fact that they yani, clap and not make the spear, the fact that, you know, there are some clear hadith that indicate differences, but in the rest of the prayer, there are none. And then you've got this issue of, if you've got individual female companions making a statement or, 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 or being observed as praying like the men do, then you've got a real strong case to keep or to promote the idea that women pray the same as men. And of course the killer, the killer, the destroyer of the argument that women pray different, is that women are praying alone in their own rooms. Who are they yani, hiding this from? You get what I'm trying to say? And if you're being modest because of the body shape of a woman, or size, or X, Y, Z, yani, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? So that's, so that's, that, 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 is, that is important to, to know. Also, uh, something that I read which is nice, important, which I didn't mention when we were speaking at the end of last year, that when you raise your hands at the beginning of the prayer, so all of the imams, they agree on the raising of the hands at the beginning of the prayer, okay? Um, uh, uh, Hanafis, Maliki, Shafis, all, they raise their hands. And whether they touch the ears or they go close to it or not. But one of the things that people don't know is that, especially in our culture, uh, yani Pakistani culture, 
um, where it gets cold a lot, then we wear chadars, big, yani long chadars, right? And so therefore, people, when they do their takbiratul ihram at the beginning, they don't have their hands up, uh, above. They have their hands inside. And so I want you to know that that has been narrated from companions and female companions, that when they would raise their hands, they would raise them from within. It's acceptable to do that. It's not a condition to display your hands to people when you're doing Rafa Eidain. So if you do have a big shawl on or a big jilbab on or your yeah, a big chadar on, whatever, then it's possible for you to do Rafa Eidain underneath it. So it's, a, it's the, the yeah, which would also then add legitimacy to the idea that the reason you're doing it is not, you know, some kind of either drop things or whatever, but it's meant to be some submissive kind of act, some kind of act of ibadah for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the people don't need to see it. The people don't need to prove it. You know, there's this kind of idea that goes around that some of the Hanafi scholars said that the reason that the Prophet because uh, they can't deny the, the raising of the hands because it's in Bukhari and the hadith is so clear. So they gave an explanation for why the hands were raised. You know, the whole that old chestnut of they need to drop the idols that they were... <laughs> Hanging, hanging underneath their arms or some nonsense like that, right? So the idea is, is that they're giving it a functionality. And obviously, all the evidence is when you start putting them together, you can make it clear that there is no functionality behind it. It's an act of worship, right? Um, right, any questions? Uh, we have uh, four minutes left. and um, Just in regards to what we used to hear about Imam, Ma- Imam Malik's position, that yeah. he was beaten, <coughs> beaten yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. is that just... just Poor knowledge or you know laziness. No, it's not poor knowledge and laziness. It it is it, it, the rumor did come from early scholars. Yeah, and their their inability their inability to compute how can Malik know about the hadith and not act by it, and instead of using the Maliki principles where they quite happily said yeah you know we accept the hadith but we're not going to act upon it because of this this this, they cut and putting into place the fact that he had pure beef with, uh, with, uh, with admin and with leaders, and he was yani, hardcore, and he was, he was bigger than the law. Yani, you know, there are certain people that you just can't touch because they're so loved and so followed. And you know, he had run-ins with the different kind of you know, uh, people of authority. So you can, it's a nice narrative. It makes sense. You know? And he probably maybe even was imprisoned. Actually, I don't know. The, I haven't studied his history enough to be able to say with certainty maybe he was even yani, arrested and maybe even imprisoned or maybe even beaten actually I don't know but was that the reason that he prayed by his hands by his sides absolutely not he actively taught this as a position it's well known yani, amongst the Maliki scholars so, but it has been obviously you know, got around and uh, so on um, now yeah I think, I think we'll stop it there I think we'll stop it there. Yes, uh, Jeeva. Um, just going back to Imam Malik, I think it's everything. I think everything creates the perfect, not storm, because the perfect storm is indicating a, neg- a negative thing. I think that, as I said, as I said, and if you go back and just think about what I said, uh, uh, all the scholars accepted that Medina is not the same. So there's a consensus on that. The question is, how far do you take that? How far do you take it? Now, obviously, if you live in a certain area, it's your hometown, all your teachers are from there as well. You know how it is. And your natural bias always goes to a place. And when that bias is founded, when you're teaching next to the body of the Prophet ﷺ, when you are breathing and living and you are, yeah, you know, you've, you're going to feel good about the place that you're in. 
And then add to that that the Prophet ﷺ authentically praises the scholars of Medina, praises the people who stay in Medina. If you hear that the Prophet ﷺ said, yani, that if that the people that they feel that they're not going to be able to have risk in Medina and then they go, and the Nabi Wasallam said that يعلمون, But if they stayed behind in Medina Then it would have better for them if they had only known That could be even interpreted amongst from the companions It could be interpreted from people That they went over there but actually the knowledge remains in Medina There's enough authentic evidences from Medina And Quranic ayat about the Ansar To give a real strong position And you know who did the biggest promotion of Medina, right? Ibn Taymiyyah Ibn Taymiyyah is the one who wrote the book on the actions or the, the evidence of the people of Medina or the school of the people of Medina. And that's in English, by the way. That's translated by Malik, is of course translated. Surprise, surprise. I think Yasin Dutton from Scotland, yeah, he's an academic there. He, uh, he translated it because obviously they love the idea that a humbly is the one who's bigging up their madhab, uh, whatever. All right, we'll call it now. Zakmullah Khair. See you guys next week, obviously, earlier time. Keep checking the schedules. And, and uh, listen, remember, when the, they pray soon, they can hear everything. They can literally hear the silence here. All right? So hang around, you get your cake. Allah, yeah. Allah, Allah, Allah.